today we're going to start a new series on the parables of Jesus. And uh, we've been in the Gospels anyway, uh, talking about what Jesus believed, and that's uh, 13 parts that you can get a hold of now on our uh, YouTube and uh, uh, Facebook and on our website as well. And so I figured we would stay in the Gospels and look at the parables of Jesus and work our way toward uh, Easter this way. And so we're going to start with the parable of the sower. Uh, but before we get there, I think we need to try and figure out uh, the answer to a couple of questions. And that is, how, first of all, what is a parable? And second of all, how do we interpret these parables, all right? So I'm going to, um, going to ask you a couple of questions, and you can play along online uh, if you like, and uh, no wrong answers, just no vulgarity, please. Uh, usually the parables don't evoke any of that, okay? Uh, but uh, uh, some questions, you know, are, are parables like mysterious allegories that you have to have some sort of weird spiritual experience in order to interpret? Tell me, those of you who are at home and those of you in the room, what is your favorite parable in the Gospels that Jesus told? The parable of the talents. Okay, good. Pardon me? The parable of the sower. Yeah, we're going to do that one today. The prodigal son. Very famous one. Yeah. Oh, you're missing one. Parable of the weeds. Good, Erezi. Oh, you're missing one. There's a really famous one. People who don't go to church know this one. People who don't go to church at all know this one. The praying Pharisee. Good one. Yeah, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Yes, the Good Samaritan, which is probably the most famous uh, uh, parable. And uh, I mean, you say the Good Samaritan to a person who doesn't attend church, an atheist will know the Good Samaritan. So these, these stories are kind of ingrained into us one way or the other. And, you know, people who go to church tend to know more parables than others. Uh, but they're tricky. Uh, the, the, the theologian Augustine, uh, because of what we're about to read, he, he believed that the parables had uh, a mysterious kind of allegorical interpretation for believers, but that people who were unbelievers couldn't understand them. So for the unbeliever, it was kind of, uh, they, they just got the surface meaning. But the believers understood the deeper meaning of the parable as if it was kind of nested in secrets. And he has a whole, a whole interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan where, you know, the Samaritan equals this and the, and the Levite equals this. And it's, you find it nowhere in the text. Uh, but in his view, there was a kind of a mystery to these parables as if Jesus was trying to be tricky and trying to be magically sort of obtuse and only certain people could understand and crack the code, but the rest of us couldn't. And so there is that view. And some say that the parables of Jesus are probably the most misinterpreted part of the Bible except for the book of Revelation. So we can really do strange things to the parables of Jesus. Uh, are they a story with an overall point then? Uh, and I think that's the view that you're probably going to be most happy with, uh, that Jesus is, is telling a story and you're trying to get the gist and the point of it. If you, if you burn your time trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? Is this a clue to something? And what does he mean by this? There's got to be something under the surface. There's got to be a code. There's got to be a secret. And parables really didn't work like that in Jesus' day. It was kind of like a story or almost like... Um, almost like a joke that would be told in the modern age. You know, a person would say, well, these two guys went to the store together and here's what happened. You know, the, you wouldn't be busy interpreting, well, which guy is which and which store is where and all of this. You're looking for the general point. What's the gist of what Jesus is saying? And some of this confusion comes from language. 
Um, so the passage that we're about to read, they ask Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? And there's a Greek word for parable that, that uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke uh, use there as they write. But Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic when he's, when he's teaching people. And there's an Aramaic word there, methal, that you translate into an English word that sounds like the Greek word for parable. But that word methal is also translatable easily into a riddle. And so here's, here's the, the tricky part. Uh, they asked Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Hence, Augustine's view, there's some kind of secret meaning here. Then Jesus continues, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Sounds kind of strange. This is why I speak to them in parables. So methyl, uh, a parable or riddle, methylin is parables, the plural in the Aramaic. So this is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6. You will be hearing but never understanding. You will be seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears or uh, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their, uh, with their eyes and hear with their, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. So for Jesus, I think what he's trying to say here is that for the person who uh, resists God, for the person with the hard and the calloused heart, when he speaks to them, it's like riddles. It, it's, it doesn't make sense to them because their hearts are hard. But for people who are, who are open to him, they understand. I don't think Jesus is trying to be deliberately obtuse here or that there's some magical overlay to these parables. I think what he's saying is if your heart is hard, it's like a riddle to you. And if your heart is soft, you understand it and you apply it to your life. And that's really what the parable of the sower is all about. So they're often misinterpreted, these parables. So I'll give you a few tips as to how to read them because there's so much truth and application in the parables, even in our lives in the 21st century. You'll see that today. So first, resist an allegorical interpretation. Unless, unless Jesus gives you some warrant to interpret this thing as an allegory, and that's very rare in the parables, resist it. I would respectfully disagree with Augustine, okay? I don't think he was right in saying we've got to overlay this kind of allegory onto everything that Jesus is saying here. So resist that type of interpretation unless Jesus gives you warrant to go there. And read the parallel for more understanding. What do I mean when I say that? So the parable of the sower that we have in front of us today, it's in parallel. So not only does Matthew have it, Mark has it, and Luke has it. The three guys have it, okay? It's not in John's gospel, but it's in Matthew and Mark and Luke, what we call the synoptics. So when we have the luxury of a parallel, we read it in the parallel. So we say, all right, Matthew says it this way, but let's see what, how Mark says it. Let's see how Luke says it. And when we put all three of those together, we get a better picture of what Jesus is saying. Because if you only read it in one, you're going to go on one angle. But if you read it in all three, then you're going to get the right angle and what Jesus was really after. So read the parallel for more understanding. And sometimes Jesus does the work for us, like he will in this parable. They're go he's going to tell them exactly what he means by it. And he'll do this with the disciples in private. Uh, but in the public setting, he doesn't interpret it. But in the private setting with them, he explains it. And you'll see why he does that. Sometimes Jesus does the work for us. If he does the work for us, don't add to it. All right? Jesus knows how to interpret what he says more than you do. 
Right, okay. I hope you agree with that. It's pretty hard to disagree with it. And, and what's the overall point? So what's the punchline? What's the, what's the final, uh, what is he in general trying to say here? And that's what you're looking for, a bit like what you'd see in, a, in the, the telling of a story or the telling even of a joke. What's the punchline? What's the point? All right? So we do this with the parable of the sower. You're going to find this in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. All right? It's a really, really interesting kind of observation of four different kinds of people. So from Matthew 13, you've got a large, large crowd uh, with Jesus. He's at the lake. I think it's the Lake of Galilee there. And so what he does is he actually gets in a boat to, to teach this crowd. And some people say if he's in a boat, the sound waves would actually carry better over the, over the Lake of Galilee to the, to the people, and they'd be able to hear him well. Anyway, he goes out into this boat, and he starts to teach the people in parables. And here's the story. A farmer went out to sow seed. Easy image, right? Their, their, their culture is agriculture. They know about the farmer sowing the seed. I mean, they have to do that to survive. So a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he's scattering the seed, some fell along the path. So the path is where people walk. Some fell along the path, and what happens to it? Well, the birds come, and they eat it. So they ate it up. Then some of it fell on rocky places. Got some soil there, but it's got rocks in there where it didn't have much soil. So it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. And then the sun comes up and the plants are scorched and they wither because they have no root. Then you have other seed, and it falls among the thorns. And you can picture the people. I mean, they're, they're right with him because they know exactly what that feels like. I mean, they're always trying to sow seed, and they're, they, they need good ground if they're going to produce a crop. And so you've got path, which isn't good ground. You've got rocky places, which isn't good ground. And here now you've got thorns. And it grows, but it's choked. The, the, the thorns grow and choke the plants. And then you have other seed, and it falls on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And Jesus finishes the story. And then the disciples come to him, and they ask him the question, why do you speak to people in parables? In methylin, why do you speak to them in parables, riddles, or parables, or stories? Why do you do this? And then he gets into it, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom has been given to you, but not to them. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah, when you've got this hard heart, and it's calloused, Think of the parable. You're going to see the calloused heart in the parable. And when their heart is calloused and it's hard, they're not going, it, 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 it can't be, the word can't be received. And the, it's like a riddle to them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your hearts and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Listen to what the parable of the sower means, and he's going to uh, interpret it for us. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, I'm just reading it from Matthew here for the moment, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, 
but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Remember, we talked about what Jesus believed about money. The deceitfulness of wealth choked the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. The heart of the person is not calloused. They understand it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. You say, wait a second. This seems very, very unfair, this parable. You're you're one of the four kinds of people, and you're sort of stuck with it. Hopefully, you're the one who got the gist of it, but these other three, it's not so good for them. Like, this seems very, very unfair. First observation, right? The the sower sows a seed, and Jesus doesn't say that the guy was a bad uh, farmer. He doesn't say, well, you know, there was this farmer who sowed seed, but he was kind of goofy, and he, you know, he throws it in bad way. He doesn't, it's unevenly spread. No, there's nothing inept about the farmer at all. It's the same message. It's the same seed that's going out. But there's four different responses, and only one out of four produces a crop. Imagine, only one. So you're batting 250. I mean, only one out of four is a successful, you've planted successfully there, and a crop starts to come. Same message but four different responses. And what Jesus is saying, overall gist, you've got four different kinds of responses based on different kinds of people. So when you start reading this in the parallels in in Mark and in Luke, you start to put things together here. And so you start with the seed on the path. And so Matthew says it, uh, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. But then you have Mark and Luke, especially Luke, so that they may not believe and be saved. Fascinating. The message doesn't seem to have taken any root when it lands on the path because it's snatched away quickly and there's no belief that leads to salvation. Now, I'll stop here for a moment because I don't want to assume this. When Jesus talks about the message of the kingdom, what does that mean? He assumes we know what it, what it meant, but what does it mean today? We're in the 21st century. What is the message of the kingdom? Shout out some answers to me. Around Christ the Messiah, okay, good, yeah. He definitely puts himself as the center of the message of the kingdom, yes. What else? Being in the world and not of the world, yeah, certainly an ethic of the kingdom. Yeah, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, yes, which he speaks of at the Last Supper, good. This is, uh, this is the, uh, the basis of the kingdom in a sense, yes. He'll come to redeem the world. Deep, Erezi. Good, okay. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Good. Ethic we find in the Sermon on the Mount. What's the first thing that Jesus says about the kingdom when he first starts talking about it? He said, repent. And John the Baptist, same thing, repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, and uh, uh, if you come to God, you come to him as a little child in the sense of uh, the, the belief and the faith isn't tarnished by other things probably. But uh, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus comes to inaugurate the coming of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has a whole different way of living. There's a whole different series of ethics to the kingdom. It's built around Jesus, around belief in Jesus. He authenticates the message of the kingdom by doing the miraculous. So he's giving people a preview. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. You see, sins are forgiven. The blind see, the dead are raised, the the lame person walks. And he's showing people this is what the kingdom of God is like. He tells all these stories about how the kingdom of God grows 
and that the full, uh, the full manifestation of the kingdom of God is not yet here, but he's inaugurating it and he's bringing it into being. It will ultimately come to pass at his second coming, the full uh, kind of manifestation, the full benefits of the kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus is talking about when he says this sower sows the message of the kingdom. So, and what happens to this first person? Well, the, the, the path is where the seed falls. There's no soil there. <laughs> the path is where people walk. It would be like throwing it on asphalt today. It would be like throwing it on a parking lot uh, asphalt today. And so what happens? Well, the, the bird comes, and many scholars say that the bird that's being referred to here is a type of crow. Uh, back in Jesus' day, a bit of a nasty bird, and it would come and it, and it would pull up that seed quickly and eat it. So the, the person does not believe, the person is not saved, according to Luke, because the message that has been th- sown to that person, that has been given to that person, is stolen from them. It seems very, very unfair when you look at this and you say, well, am I this kind of person? I mean, how would I know? Like, is that what happens? The, the, the devil comes to steal away the message? I mean, by this, Jesus certainly affirms the existence of the evil one, the devil, Satan. Wow. When you think about it and when you slow, slow this down and when you look at what happens in, in nature there and you see how that process would have happened, well, this is the person who... It's not that they don't understand the message. They have an intellectual understanding of the message. But this is the person who Isaiah talked about. The heart is calloused like that path. It's hard. There's no soil there. There's nothing there. This is the person who refuses to submit to the message of the kingdom. So they refuse to repent and believe. The message is sitting there on the hard ground, and the person's doing nothing about it. It's not going in. It's not being planted. The ground is so hard and callous, just as Isaiah said, so there's no willful submission to the message. They understand it on an intellectual level, but not on a volitional level. So they're not willing to submit to what is being called for. And Jesus talked about this. He says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road to life, and few will find it. You know, you've got to take up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. If you build a, you build a home or you build a structure, you better consider the cost of how much it's going to cost you to build that structure. So no willful submission or delay. So, well, I'll... Think about that later on in life. Like right now, I'm having too much fun, and Jesus is calling me to something that I don't want to change. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give up this relationship. I don't want to give up this pursuit in life. I don't want to give up this materialism. I don't want to give up this this, uh, addiction that I have. I don't want to change these things in my life. It's going to cost me too much, but I'll put it on the back burner And I'll think about it later when bad things are happening to me. Because right now, too much good is happening, and I'm not going to change it by this whole Jesus thing. That's delay. And when there's delay and the seed just sits there on the asphalt, well, the crow isn't dumb. The crow is not foolish. The crow sees and says, excuse me, but I'm going to take that, and I'm going to dine on it. Because you're not doing anything with it, so I'm going to steal it from you. There are other voices that come into this person. There are other views. There are other forms of spirituality. There are other kinds of things that distract this person. And eventually, they don't even remember what the message was anymore. (laughs) Trouble comes, and what was that? Uh, Jesus, I don't remember. It's all confusion. It's all muddled to them. Why? Because the enemy has come in and seized the opportunity to snatch away that which was sown in the person's life because their heart was hard. This is the type of person, this is a process that Jesus is talking about when he says the seed on the path. 
I don't think that this is to be interpreted fatalistically. Too bad, so sad. You're the path. Too bad. Like Russian roulette. You're, you're, in, you're in serious trouble. You know, the enemy is stealing away that which was sown into your heart. No, I think this is a choice. Person, what kind of, of ground are you? What kind of heart are you? Are you the heart that Isaiah spoke to hundreds of years before Jesus that is calloused like that path? Or are you responsive? So this is the seed on the path. Then you have the seed on the rocky ground. So Matthew receives it with joy, but there's no root. Mark, same thing. Trouble or persecution come because of the word. So you're a Christian? You mean you go to church? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what did you do yesterday? You did what? You, you attended a what? Prayer meeting on Zoom? Like, have you lost your mind? You believe in Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus all of a sudden? And there's trouble and there's persecution. I'm not so sure I want to invite you to this party. I'm not so sure I want to be friends with you because you've, you've lost your mind. You're following the, the Jesus thing. You know, you're, you're going to become like uh, Donald Trump or something or you know, these crazy Americans. That's what you people are. You know, they have all these perceptions and all these views, right, of what they think Christianity is for whatever reason. There's trouble, there's persecution, there's testing because of the word and what happens to the person, they quickly fall away. They can't take the heat of that moment. They're like the seed on the rocky ground. So when you plant seed and you want it to grow, you, you need to have the rocks out of there. Uh, my family, we live in a, in a condo, there's a whole sort of section of condos there, and my wife is a, is a very good gardener, and uh, she's kind of the envy of the little section of little homes there, and they watch when she gardens out in the front, we have a little patch, and they watch her, and they try to observe her technique and all these things, and she knows how to do irrigation, and she knows about soil and all this, and every, every summer we do the whole thing, and I just do what I'm told, um, but she knows, and she knows how to do it, and then the neighbors come, and they say, man, how'd you do that? Like, that looks really good, and then, and, then. and sometimes they steal things from our garden. They steal spices and mints and all these things, and we see them clip, they've clipped things off, they go and make tea with them, whatever. But when she plants, there's one thing that I learned, the ground where we live is bad ground. There's all these rocks in there. There's rocks everywhere. It's so cheaply made. The landscaping is so bad. There's all these rocks. You dig and say, look at these rocks. Nothing's going to grow with all these rocks in the ground. Okay, get the rocks out. Yes, dear, <laughs> take the rocks, throw them out, do something with them, get rid of these rocks and put some decent soil there because it's so bad. There's rocks everywhere. There's a lot of land, but it's just rocks. Take the rocks out so that the thing will grow and so that roots will go in there because otherwise you're going to get something growing, but it's not going to last. It's going to burn up. The wind will come. The sun will come. The rain will come. No roots because of these dreaded rocks. And you get weeds everywhere, but you're not going to... That's another story that Jesus told. But you're not going to have growth. This is the person. They receive the message. They get the message. They receive the message with joy, but it doesn't last. They fall away rather quickly this, to me, is one of the, the most common things that I have seen as a pastor for 20-plus years is people like this. This is very, very common, especially today in this kind of time uh, in, like, church history. This is very common. This is a person who has a few things going on. It can happen a few ways. Number one, no discipleship. Person believes, but there's no, there's no growth. There's no root that goes down in their life. So they come to church whenever there's church or online or whatever, but there's no growth. There's no, okay, what do I do now? 
There's no, well, how do I learn to read the Bible and apply the Bible to my life? And how do I learn to pray? And how do I go through life with this situation and this situation? What do I do about this now? What do I do about that? I need to become a follower of Jesus. I need to start to emulate Jesus in my life and in the things that I do and the things that I say, the things that I believe. All these things have to change. And I need to learn how to do this. I need to learn to become a student of Jesus. How do I do this? But there's no pursuit of that. It's just, well, you know, we'll come to church and leave and what? Don't really do anything more than that. So you baptize in water? No, don't have any desire to be baptized in water. You you do anything involved? You get to know people in your own church? You talk to people? You build relationships with people? You ask people questions? Hey, I'm going through this in my life. How do I deal with this with God? What do I do with this thing and this person and this situation and this choice? And how does God come into it? Do you know anybody? Do you talk to anybody like that? Or you just, no, I just come come and go and that's it. Well, there's no discipleship then. You're not becoming a student of Jesus. You just got the surface level thing. There's just a little surface, little thing of growth there. But when trouble comes and people start to criticize you, people start to say, you believe this, you believe that, and the sun starts blazing down on you, you're going to fall away quickly. No discipleship. The biggest in the Western world, the biggest religious view now, the most popular religious view now is no view. So we call these the nuns, the rise of the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. So the nuns, this is a group of people, and if you ask them a question, what is your religious view? Are you Buddhist? Are you Muslim? Are you Jewish? Are you Christian? Are you Hindu? Are you whatever? They look for the box. It says, none. (laughs) They check it, and they say, oh, I don't want anything to do with your religion, and, you know, I tried that. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the whatever religious setting. It's not for me. I'm out. None. Thank you very much. I believe in nothing. This is the fastest growing view in the Western world, the nuns. And the people who adhere to this worldview are in their late teens, early 20s, even early 30s. They are leaving the church in droves, checking that nun box. And these are people who there was no discipleship. There was no connection with other people. There was no pursuit of growth for whatever reason. Sometimes it's not necessarily through the fault of their own, maybe through their own fault, but there was no uh, growth that took place. And so trouble came and, you know, the young person went off to Sejep or they went off to university and a, a professor said, your Christianity is, is rubbish, you, you, you believe that? It's just rubbish that you're believing. Here's why. You need, to, you need to grow up. You need to mature. You're believing in Santa Claus. Welcome to the real world. There is no God. There is no Jesus. There is no resurrection, no discipleship, no learning, nobody who they go to who they can say, help, I don't understand this. What's going on in my life? Nothing like that. And so they fall away and they become a nun. This is happening. Parents, listen to me. It's happening to your teens and your young adults in droves. If there's no discipleship, then by the time they're able to decide whether or not they want to go to church, they say, bye-bye, enjoy yourself. I'm staying home. And we have to wake up to this. This This is the new reality that we now live in. Now, uh, you know, I feel a burden, if I may say, and just be frank, for the young people who are part of this church. I really do. You know, we have tried to get a student ministry and get young people together over the first now five years of this church, and it's kind of sputtered in and out like a wet firecracker. You know, you get some people together, there's starting to be something, and then, oh, this people, not at interest level, whatever, the leader, no lack of leadership, whatever, whatever. Can I just tell you? Um, here's what you need to do, young people, uh, and here's what you need to do, not so young people. And you know, some of you are here today, some of you are not here today. You you need to start to get to know some of the seniors in this church. 
you need to start to get to know some of the seasoned, matured adults in this church. I know every single person who's in this room to some degree or shape or form. I know the seniors who are in this room. I know the ones who are watching online. Let me tell you, young people, they're really cool, these seniors in this church. And they've lived some pretty crazy stuff. They've experienced stuff that will blow your mind. Like you think your life is tough at your age. You should sit down and talk with these people. Here's one of them. Now, you should sit and talk with these people and ask them questions. Tell me about, your, tell me about this. What was it like growing up? What do I do in this situation? I'm having this problem in my life. Like, let's go do a coffee. Let's, let's spend some time together. And you start picking the brains of these people who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. You're going to learn some really, really life-changing stuff. And seniors who are in the room, 50 plus, 60, 70, 80, people who are watching, you need to take an interest in the young people who are coming to this church. You need to, you need to, to wait for them. You need to go up to them and ask them questions. How's your life? What can I pray for in your life? What are you doing in school? Let's go out for a coffee. Let's have lunch. Come to my house. Let's have dinner. And you start to get to know them, and you start to build relationships. I'm telling you, seniors, it's a ministry. You can pour into the lives of young people and disciple them so that they don't become one of these nuns who walks away from the faith. You were tempted to walk away from your faith, you seniors, when you were their age, and something kept you in there. Something kept you in the game. That's what they need to learn. They need to learn from people who faced the heat and made it through and still have held on to their brains and their faith at the same time. And that's what young people need. They're not, they're not looking for entertainment. They're looking for authenticity, and they can find that in seniors. Young people listen to me, and seniors listen to me. It can be life-changing when you start thinking of discipleship that way. And in adults, I see this also, this, this seed on the rocky ground. It is, I mean, you talk about a pandemic. Let me tell you the pandemic that's been going on for years and years and years in the Western world, in the church, in particular in the province of Quebec, it's the pandemic of church hopping. Church to church to church to church to church. Whoa, I mean, I can't even, sometimes I don't even have, have enough energy to come to my own church and I'm the pastor. And I know people who are jumping from church to church to church, running around. I'll try this one. I'll try this one. I'll try this one. I'll try this one. Oh, my goodness. Like, when are you going to put a root down in a community of faith? You know what you're doing? You're the seed on the rocky ground, jumping around from church to church. Yes, I know there's legitimate reasons to go to a different assembly. I know all that. I've, I've pastored for 20 years. But most of the time, people who jump around from church to church to church are just like the seed on the rocky ground. No root. Running around conference to conference, giving tons of money to this ministry and this ministry. Maybe they'll help me. Maybe they'll help me. This one will help me. That one will help me. Oh, jump, 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 jump. And no root, no root, no discipleship, no spiritual formation, and believing all kinds of junk as a result, and no growth in their lives. Just, just blown away when trouble comes. It's so common. Then you have the, the, the seed that goes among the thorns. In my garden, it's not thorns, it's weeds. And Jesus told a story about weeds right after, but thorns, kind of the same deal. So Jesus talks about this, the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth. Interesting, wealth can trick you. When you have a lot of it, it can trick you. Jesus says, you watch it. Like it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's how hard it is for rich people because they're tricked by their wealth. It can be deceitful when you have it. Be careful. Riches, pleasures, Luke says, choke it. And they do not mature. This is also a big crisis in the Western church because we have it all. We have everything here. We're so, it's like paradise here living in the Western world. Canada, the U.S., these countries, it's like paradise. Folks, 
go to other places in the world where they don't have clean running water and electricity and access to health care and food and all of this stuff. We throw away all of these things. In other places in the world, they do not have this. We have all of this materialism, all of this wealth, all of this pleasure. And Jesus says it's going to choke it. It's going to choke the seed. What happens? We have mistaken priorities. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these other things. Speaking of basic material things that you need, these things will be added to you. But what do we do? We reverse the priorities. And we're seeking all of these material things, running around, running around, running around. And, and it's not that it's bad per se. Like, it, you, you have to live in this world. You have to feed your family. You have to pay your mortgage. You have to pay your bills. You have to, all these things, you live in this world. But when this thing becomes your priority in life, and Jesus and God are in the back, and there's always a plan B, and you're, you're, like, your dependency on God is like nothing. There's virtually zero dependence on God because you have all of these other options, but they're faithless options. They don't, they don't grow faith. They're, it's just like the person who's an atheist, but we become Christian atheists. We have the name Christian, but we function just like atheists do. There's no difference because all that stuff has come in and choked it. So the thing is trying to grow, but the thorn just stifles it, and it cannot produce growth. It cannot produce a crop, and it's just, it's just paralyzed like that by these thorns. Thorns. Oh, so common. This is a story told 2,000 years ago. You see it happening today. And then you see the one that made it. The seed that gets on that good soil. Fertile soil. The person hears the message. The person understands the message. The person accepts the message in Luke. The person retains it in Luke. The person has a noble and good heart in Luke. Not like the person who Isaiah prophesied about who's got the calloused heart like the path. No, this person's heart is not that way. They accept it, understand it, retain it. And they persevere. They're able to make it through the difficult moments in life. And what happens? They produce fruit. There's a crop 30, 60, 100 times over. It's, there's growth that happens. So what is this? What does this look like? This is the person who becomes the passionate follower of Jesus. It's all over their life. You can tell that they're a passionate follower of Jesus. They're not in a nutcase. It makes a difference in their life. Maybe people say, well, you know, it's, it's good for them, but not for me. But they look at the person, they respect the person because they say, this person, it's Jesus all the time, but not in an offensive way. We see that their, their religion and their, their Jesus makes an enormous difference in their life. And they're always talking about it. Maybe we don't believe it, but we respect what we see in this person's life. They are certainly passionate about their Jesus. This is what happens when the seed starts to produce fruit. You start to see a difference in the person's life. It becomes obvious that they are a Christ follower. It's obvious to other Christ followers. It's obvious to non-Christ followers. They say, look at the change and the fruit in this person's life. They used to be a scoundrel. This person used to be a thief. This person used to be an addict. This person used to be an alcoholic. This person used to be a, a, a liar and a cheater. And now their life is completely changed. What in the world happened to them? It's pretty, pretty amazing what happened to them. Maybe it's not for me, but I look at their life. I say, wow, that is impressive because even the unbeliever can identify that in people's lives when there's actually something going on and there's fruit that, that's growing. But not only does it grow in the individual's life, the individual is multiplying themselves. And this, again, is another Another difficulty that we have here in the church here, largely in North America, you know, most, 
most Christians, this is a statistic. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just telling you the statistic. Most Christians do not multiply themselves. Most Christians do not lead other people to Christ. Most Christians do not make disciples. Just ask yourself the question, have you made a disciple in your life? That means someone is now a Christ follower because of your direct influence on them. This is what Jesus said. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what he said. Have you, have you made any disciples? Ask yourself the question. You're going to be very disturbed by your answer in most cases. This is because here it's very, very difficult. Here we've got, we have all these other things. We've got the path. We've got the rocky ground. We've got the thorns. We need to be the good soil. You know it's good soil when you're multiplying. Passionate followers of Jesus create passionate followers of Jesus. They make disciples. There are people in the kingdom because of their influence. There are people who are going to heaven when they die because their life was changed by Christ. Why? Because of the influence of this other person. This is what Jesus wants out of the kingdom. This is what he wants out of his people. But this is not happening the way that he wants it to happen here. Go to other countries in the world where you cannot control the amount of growth that's happening in people's lives. There are countries in the world, especially countries where times are tough, where there's poverty, where there's persecution, and the church is exploding. It's growing so quickly, there, aren't, there isn't enough time to, to work with the people and disciple the people. And the, and the problem there is all the weird doctrine that starts happening and all the strange leadership that starts rising up. But it's not a problem of fruit. There's fruit all over the place. Someone needs to cultivate the fruit, the fruit, but there's fruit everywhere. Here we have a hard time with this. So the question becomes then, which one are you? Which one am I? And I'd invite the musicians if they'd come to the, to the stage and you can play something quietly in the background as we finish up here. But which one are you? And you know this by your response. This parable, this story is, a, he's looking at people, he's evaluating people and how they respond to him. And it's a warning. What kind of person are you? What kind of soil, what's the process that happens as the message of the kingdom has been deposited into my life, into your life? What's the process that's happening? Is it being snatched up by the enemy? Have you got all these other voices in your head? Are you saying, I'll deal with this later? I'm having too much fun now. I like being the God of my life. Thank you very much. And I don't need this. I'll deal with it later when I have problems, when I get a bad diagnosis from a doctor, when my wife divorces me. Maybe I'll start thinking about this. Maybe I'll start thinking about that. that is that the type of person that you are, that you want to be? Are you the seed on the rocky ground? No discipleship. You're about ready to become a nun. Which one are you? Are you being choked by the thorns? Or are you the person who's got a passionate relationship with Jesus that's producing fruit? Father, I pray for each person in the room today, those who are watching, those who are online, those who are going to listen to it later, who are going to watch it later. And Lord, as you challenge us through this 2,000-year-old story, I pray, Lord, for each kind of person who's hearing now, each kind of person who the Word is going forth into their hearts and minds, Lord, that we would take the moment to cultivate our own soil. Take the moment to change if we have to change, to repent if we have to change and repent, Lord, to not be that calloused heart, to not be that heart that's obstructed by rocks or thorns, but to be the heart that bears the fruit. Lord, I pray for young people in this room and they're under such pressure and such strain as they face all of these decisions. Lord, may they begin to grow in you. 
May there be friendships that are developed between them and other people, even in this, even in this assembly, that would lead to growth in their lives. I pray for seniors who God have such a wealth that they can pour into young people and make disciples. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us and forgive us. We have missed the mark in so many ways here. But help us, Lord, and lead us and guide us, we pray. Encourage our hearts that we may be passionate followers of you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you today. I hope this has been a, been a challenge to you. I know it's challenging even for me as I read it, but I hope it encourages you at the same time. You indeed have a choice as to what kind of soil you will be. Hope you'll join with us either on Wednesday or Thursdays. We've got a couple of things going on Zoom there. Make sure you visit with Wedlin in the foyer. We can handle your donations there. We've got your income tax receipts there as well. God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday today.